Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Someone said those are the most profound words that have ever been written by a human pen. In the beginning, God. You know, uh, Genesis tells us about who we are. Schopenhauer, the famous philosopher, on one occasion was sitting on a park bench and he was dressed rather shabbily and a policeman said, uh, Who are you? He said, I wish I knew. Well, the Bible tells us, Genesis tells us who we are, where we came from, where the universe came from. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of man, the beginning of evil, the beginning of salvation, we have it all here. Crucial that we have our foundation laid here. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Traditionally, it's been attributed to Moses. It doesn't say. But that's not arbitrary. The New Testament attributes it to Moses, Jesus, after his resurrection. And talking to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and then to enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He begins at Moses. He begins at the first writer. And uh, so the book of Genesis is attributed to Moses. Moses doesn't come along until Exodus, but he could have used oral tradition. He could have used various documents. Uh, God could reveal the past to him. God had to reveal the past to whoever wrote the opening chapter of Genesis because no one was around. And uh, just as God can reveal the future and did in great detail, he could reveal the past. Uh, reverse prophecy. Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We have here the uh, claim that I'm making that Moses wrote. You have an alternate claim that's been advanced uh, earlier this century called the Groff Wellhausen view, named after two German theologians, uh, who came up with what was called the documentary hypothesis of the origin of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Their claim is that you didn't have a single author. You had a number of authors who wrote different documents and used, you identify these because they used different names for God. You notice here in the beginning, God, the Hebrew word is Elohim, uh, which uh, is this document, the E document. And then in the second chapter, you read about Jehovah or the Lord God or Yahweh. And uh, they'd say, ah, here's a different document. Different author, different name for God. And then they would have other documents. That, uh, that theory never did have much to give it credence and has been thoroughly discredited by other studies. The traditional view is the right view and the one to plant your feet upon, in my opinion. You notice the creation of the universe in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's he created the universe. That's what's meant by heaven here. Hebrew didn't have a word for heaven per se, or the universe per se, excuse me. And this is creation out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. In Hebrews 11:3, by faith, we understand that 
The world was framed by the Word of God, and the things that we see were not made out of things which do appear. Creation out of nothing. Scientists in our day, incidentally, are saying uh, that that's not at all uh, hard scientifically to accept. If you compare this with other ancient views of creation, all of them had uh, material pre-existent, and the universe is created out of matter. Uh, in uh, the Babylonian account of creation, you have Tamat, which was the saltwater ocean, involved in a huge struggle with gods that Tamat had created, and in this struggle, Tamat is defeated and killed, and then Tamat's body is split in half, and half of it becomes the universe, and half of it becomes the earth. That would be the way other ancient documents read, totally different, so that when the astronauts uh, were out in space, they didn't hesitate to read this account to the world. When we compare it with modern views of the origin, we're familiar with the Big Bang Theory of how the universe came into being. Uh, the idea that there was an instant of creation 15 to 20 billion years ago in a fireball explosion that sent the stars and planets tumbling outward and into their current situation. 1913, Sippler uh, noticed as he studied the galaxies that there was what's called a red shift that indicated they were moving away from the Earth and away from each other. And uh, he discovered they were receding at a speed of about anywhere from 2 million to 100 million miles per hour, these galaxies from each other. And then an astronomer uh, by the name of Hubble formulated a law of this, a law of an expanding universe, and uh, he said that that must indicate that there was a point at which there was a dense core that got hotter and hotter, and finally there was an explosion. They're traveling outward now. They once were all together. And the reason they're traveling outward is the result of that explosion. And uh, then two other scientists uh, who worked for Bell Laboratories, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, discovered that the universe and the Earth was bathed in a faint glow of radiation coming from every direction in the heavens. The earth itself couldn't be the origin of this, uh, nor could the radiation come from the moon or the sun or any other particular object. The entire universe seemed to be the source. And as they wrestled with that, they decided that what they were seeing and finding was the residue of that original explosion. And... Uh, uh, no explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball of radiation there. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the, for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. As a matter of fact, two other scientists had predicted earlier that there ought to be such radiation in the universe, and then these two men discovered it. Robert Jastrow, the 
head of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies of NASA, also the professor of astronomy and geology at Columbia University. In his book, God and the Astronomers, points out the fact that there was a beginning, the universe had a start like that, has been disturbing to some scientists. And the fact that once you get back to that point, you can't push any further, in a sense. And uh, he says in his book that, that for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. We knew the universe had a beginning. Uh, we knew where it came from. God, in the beginning, created. Now, uh, of course, an alternate faith of our day, an alternate explanation is that it just happened. Materialism, that matter is eternal, has always been here, or secularism or naturalism, that all of this took place without any directing hand, any intelligent being, uh, any guiding uh, plan to it. Carl Sagan would represent such a materialistic view in his program, The Cosmos, uh, a recent book that's been written, Science Held Hostage by three scientists at Calvin College, uh, Howard Van Til, Davis A. Young, Clarence Minninger. Davis Young is on the board of Westminster Seminary with me, and I've had the privilege of getting to know him over the last several years. They point uh, out the uh, views of Sagan in here and how they really are not scientific views, although he knows a lot about science, uh, yet there are religious views that he advances in the name of science. And uh, <clears throat> Sagan says things like this, The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That's science. How does he know that? That's gone beyond the pale of science. And so, it, in a sense, that kind of thinking and teaching would hold science hostage. It would be an imposition on true science. Uh, again, uh, Sagan says that uh, for thousands of years, humans were oppressed, as some of us still are, by the notion that the universe is a marionette whose strings are pulled by a god or gods unseen and inscrutable. In other words, you've been oppressed, and still are some of you, by the idea there's a creator who controls things. Uh, well, God created, says Scripture. Notice the condition of the earth when he creates it in verse 2. It says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. It was unformed. It was somewhat chaotic when he first brings it into being. But then he moves to complete the earth, starting with verse 3. And God said, 
Let there be light. And there was light. Now we begin to hit the work of God in transforming the unformed earth into the present world. And it's described as happening in successive creation days. Uh, We're told that uh, let there be light and God called the light day and so on. And this was the morning and the evening of the first day. How do you have light without the sun? The sun wasn't created until the fourth day. Well, you have all kinds of light today that is not from the sun. The aurora borealis or the northern lights, phosphorescence or uh, ultraviolet light, a number of different forms of light. And what about the day? Was this a 24-hour day? Could have been. Uh, When you start talking about creation and time, it gets kind of fuzzy. For instance, when Jesus created fish and fed 5,000 people, had you been at the back of the crowd and you just arrived, you didn't know where the fish came from, and uh, they handed you a piece, and I said, how old do you reckon that fish is? You say, well, a year. Actually, it was a few minutes old. Creation... Uh, time begins to get fuzzy, and uh, creation of something in, involves the appearance of age. If uh, God created a tree, would it have rings? Uh, when God created Adam, how old did he appear? How old was he actually? He appeared, what, 30 years old? He actually was five seconds old? You have those who would uh, argue for 24-hour day, which would mean that the earth is very young maybe 10,000, 15,000 years old. And they would bring forward uh, uh, various reasons to, uh, scientific reasons to bolster their argument. They would insist that we have to take this as a 24-hour day to correctly be true to Scripture. But I question that. Uh, You have the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, used in the second chapter and the fourth verse to cover the whole six-day period in the day that the Lord created the heaven and the earth. The sixth day is a very busy day. God, we're told, creates man on the day. But then as you get into the second chapter of Genesis, when he explains how he did that, first he created man. Then he creates woman. All on the same day, creation day, he he creates the creatures and he has man name these creatures. He brings them before Adam. And there's no creature found a suitable helpmate for Adam. And then God creates the woman. All of that in one 24-hour period is a pretty crowded 24-hour period. And uh, I don't really believe that we need to draw the line with 24 hours. As a matter of fact, uh, in uh, their book here, Science Held Hostage, these three evangelical Christians take men like Henry Morris, whom I greatly respect, to task for being adamant about the idea of a young earth. They point out that uh, those men are not really doing their homework in some cases. For instance, one of the arguments for a young earth that uh, they would bring forward is the shrinkage of the sun. About 10 years ago, a scientific document was published uh, suggesting that the sun, by measurements taken over a long period of time, years and years, seemed to be shrinking so much each year. Well, they picked up on that, uh, Morris and others, and said, well... The sun's been shrinking so many years, it obviously couldn't be billions of years old. It would have ceased to exist at that shrinkage rate. 
At that shrinkage rate, it must be about 15,000 years old. But as these men point out, there were other documents published after that that critiqued the original document and showed it was wrong and that actually the sun's not shrinking, and so they haven't really done their homework. Or the moon dust. Uh, there's space dust from meteorites that's constantly falling on the earth and on the moon. And when, when uh, our scientists were planning on putting a spaceship on the moon, the question was, how much dust is there? Because if there's a mile of dust, your spaceship would just sink right into this soft dust. If there's 20 feet of dust, you've got to have long pads on it. What happens when the man steps out of the spaceship and goes down into the dust and so on? And uh, measuring the amount of dust falling on the earth and then calculating how much would fall on the moon, there could well be a whole lot of dust up there. But when they actually got up there, uh, they found there was only a little bit, oh, maybe a third of an inch in certain places, three feet where there were drifts. Well, Morris and others argued that if the universe was as old as billions of years, then there should have been a mile of dust, or certainly a lot more than was actually found there. And the amount of dust found there would indicate that the moon is only maybe 15,000 years old. But again, these men show how they didn't do their homework. Uh, that the estimates originally given by scientists of how much dust is actually falling uh, was not accurate. Their, their measurements were contaminated, and they weren't getting an accurate count. So that not nearly as much dust is falling from these meteorites as originally thought on the earth or on the moon. And uh, the fact that there was only a small amount of dust doesn't indicate that you have a young earth or a young moon. I think that uh, James Boyce, in his excellent commentary on Genesis, James Boyce, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church, PCA Church up in Philadelphia, written, I think, probably the finest commentary on Genesis available today. And uh, he says, as much as he respects uh, men like Morris and others, that he feels that they, uh, he has to agree with those who take the position that the, the young earth theory is running against the tide of too many other evidences that point to a long period of time uh, for the age of the universe. Billions of years. When they date the explosion back, they would come up with 15 to 20 billion years in terms of where they are now. If you, if you calculate back at their current speeds, uh, how long have they been in that situation? Why, well, then you'd come up with a universe 15 to 20 billion years old. When you do uh, your dating of the Earth rocks and moon rocks from a radioactive method of dating, you come up with about 4.5 billions of years old. That's no real problem for us as we read Genesis. These are creation days. They could well be long periods of time. We don't know how long they were. The second day in verse 6, it says that God separates the waters from the waters. Verse 6, God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament, divided the waters which are under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. This is an unfortunate 
choice of words to translate the Hebrew word rakia. Firmament goes back to the Latin word, and it really means expanse. And yet, to us, it conveys the idea of the three-storied universe where you had a steel heaven up here that's firm and stars actually located solidly in it and water above that steel heaven. That's not what's being said. What's being said is that there's an expanse, our current atmosphere. Birds fly through this firmament or this expanse. Above it, you have water. Beneath it, you have water. The water beneath it is the surface of the earth, water, the oceans and so on. The water above it, what is that? Our clouds. Or it may be that early on, there was a canopy of water. There was more water in suspension in the upper atmosphere, in the troposphere, than there is today. Some planets that you look at have water canopies around them. If you had that then, and you may have had, because it says that uh, prior to the flood, that it didn't rain. That a mist went up from the earth and watered the earth. It may be that uh, this was condensed out at the flood, this canopy was. It would have a greenhouse effect if you had something like that and create more uniformity in temperature. And interestingly, when you dig at the poles, you find that the poles are one time tropical. You have tropical vegetation. Also, it would affect the amount of radiation reaching us, and that has something to do with aging, and we read about the lengthy years that people lived to back then. The third day, uh, you have life created, and the language carefully points out that this life didn't come into being on its own. Verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass. The herb yielding seed, the fruit uh, yielding, the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind. Each thing that God creates life and then each reproduces after its kind. Like begets like, not unlike. The fourth day you have the sun and the moon being created. The fifth day you have the animate creatures in the air and in the sky, birds and fish. Step by step. And majestic grandeur, it unfolds with God as the actor, exalting God's creatorship at each step. In the sixth day, he makes man, and we're going to deal in detail with that next week. But notice all is in order for man's arrival. There's a a recent book that's been written. The intellectuals speak out about God. One of the intellectuals uh, quoted in here is Professor Henry Marginot of Yale University, philosopher of science there. And he speaks about the anthropic principle, namely that that's a way of thinking about the universe, that the universe is, or in particular our solar system and so on, is so designed that man could exist. It's as if it's designed for man to exist on the earth. The anthropic principle, an approach to thinking about the universe as a whole, which notes that the physical conditions must be as we find them 
or there could be no intelligent life in the universe. Jastro says that this anthropic principle is the most theistic result to ever come out of science. What does he mean? Years ago, a book was written by A. Cressy Morrison, who was the president of the New York Academy of Sciences, called Man Does Not Stand Alone. And in it, he details the conditions that have to exist for there to be life and man on this earth. And you don't find these conditions anywhere else that we've been to or looked at or have any knowledge of in the universe. For instance, uh, had the bulk of the earth been greater or less, had the speed been different, were it further from or nearer to the sun, no life. If the earth rotated more slowly, vegetation would burn up. Uh, if the sun gave off less or more radi radiation, we couldn't survive. The earth is tilted at a 23 degree uh, tilt, thus our seasons, if it weren't, your poles would have great ice caps that would make tremendous differences. Uh, so thick they would be, they would bulge the earth out and so on. If the moon were closer, the tides would cover the earth. If the crust of the earth were 10 feet thicker, no oxygen on the earth. If the ocean were a few feet deeper, you couldn't have any carbon dioxide or oxygen. It would absorb it. If the atmosphere was thinner, the rays would uh, uh, either kill men, uh, uh, wouldn't work out. You, you have just enough uh, to let the rays needed in for vegetation and to kill bacteria, but not to harm man, and on and on. It's designed. Those things all falling in line uh, could not happen by chance, says Morrison. And that's what these men are saying, the anthropic principle. Well, what should we say about all this? Obviously, it should lead us to praise God. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things. Think about how vast the universe is. With your naked eye, you can see about 10,000 stars, maybe. You can see our galaxy and even other galaxies. Well, our galaxy is spiral. It has about 200 billion stars in it. It uh, rotates once every 250 million years. From one side of our galaxy to the other side of our galaxy is 600,000 trillion miles. The space in between the galaxies, and there are billions of galaxies, the space in between them is 20 million trillion miles. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. When we think about that, what an incredible being God is. He said, let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And it comes into being. We should delight in creation. We should uh, uh, just delight when we see the incredible design in everything around us, from the flower to the human brain. We should delight in creation. We should, uh, upon contemplation, learn to trust God. 
You remember Jesus said, why are you anxious? Why do you worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear? Your heavenly Father knows. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the creation. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass of the field, won't he much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? A traveler was traveling in the African desert and got lost. Mungo Park. He was about to despair. He saw no hope in this vast wilderness of finding his way out. And suddenly, in his moment of just utter wanting to lie down and give up, he saw a beautiful little flower in a crevice of the rock. And he thought, now, if God put that here, and he designed it, and he took so much care, look at it. Surely, if he takes that much care for an unimportant thing like that flower, won't he take care of those who are made in his own image? It gave him fresh hope. And he struggled on and was rescued. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. There's two of them. And the Word was God. Somehow they're distinct and somehow they're one. That's, of course, the second person of the Trinity. God the Son. By Him, God the Son, were all things created, were all things made that were made. And without Him was not anything made that was made. God the Son made all things. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all combined in creation, but it says that all things were made by God the Son. And then, and then, it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The one who created all things had himself made man and dwelt among us. And then, He let men spit on him and whip him and crucify him because his creatures had rebelled against him and yet he loved them and he came to pay for their sin. God so loved the world that he gave his son, the son so loved that he came and died. The one who spoke those universes into being and controls them took our guilt upon himself and died and then offers us free forgiveness, relationship with him, personal relationship with him. If we will surrender to him, who wouldn't surrender to the person who created the universe and then who gave himself for us, and yet many don't. Isn't that the basis in gratitude and the, and the most utter folly you can imagine? True surrender, true trust in Him to forgive me, to give me that personal relationship with the creator of the universe.
the maker of the universe as man for man was made a curse. The claims of law which he had made unto the uttermost he paid. His holy finger made the bough which grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hand in secret places he designed. He made the forest whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The sky that darkened o'er his head, by him above the earth was spread. The sun that hid from him its face, by his decree was poised in space. The spear which spilled his precious blood was tempered in the fires of God. The grave in which his form was laid was hewn in rock his hands had made. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, uh, have you been resisting Jesus Christ? Do you want to keep on doing that? Surely, surely not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God is able and desires to recreate you. To say, let there be light in you. Won't you turn to him and surrender to Jesus Christ, the creator who offers himself as your redeemer. Surrender to him. Invite him into your life. Pray in your heart like this right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world you made, letting men spit on you, dying for me. Lord, I do surrender to you. Come into my life. I trust you as my Savior. If you have already been a Christian, but you've been worried, concerned, if he clothe the lilies of the field, won't he much more take care of you, meet your need? Trust him. Amen.